I see my first killing at the age of five. Bullets was flying. Bow, 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 bow. It was crazy chaos. My little heart was pumping. Yeah. That would be the beginning. soon become a part of Side of Chicago. This is the 80s. My mother picked up uh, me and my two sisters after working our second shift from my grandmother's house. My grandmother stayed on 16th and Hamlin by Independence, a part of the West Side that was known for violence and, and more. Um, she picked us up uh, like she always did this was the routine my grandmother would uh, help watch us and babysit us while my mother tried to uh, pick up extra shifts and it was on this specific night that uh, we was on our way home after being scooped and Within like five minutes of leaving my grandmother's house, we was at a at a light, a red light. To the left of that red light, it was a group of little girls. They had to be about mm, anywhere between the ages of eight to 13, give or take, but it was a group of them. And they crossed in front of us at this intersection there. Uh, as they was crossing, out of nowhere to the right of us this car was swer just swerved and 
hit one of the hit one of the girls and she flipped up in the air at least 10 to 15 feet and she landed on the side of her body and immediately got up and ran to the end of the street well to that corner of the intersection she was crossing and then collapsed the car kept going uh, it, it slowed down slowly after but then it started to pick up speed and then out of nowhere bullets was just coming from the right side the same direction that the, the little girls was crossing to it was a corner of vice lords it was about maybe five of them. Uh, and all I know is that they ran out to that car and just started shooting. Empty those guns with it, with all. I, I never seen anything like that uh, where it was just like rapid fire just chaos and lit up into that car and then my mother turned around and just jumped on top of us told us to get down stay down and all I could hear was screams from the girls outside and we screaming in the inside of the car uh, I don't know if we was going to make it or not make it out a lot um, but it was crazy and uh Maybe 10 minutes later, everything was kind of silent and you could still hear the screams of the girls. And my, my mother looked up and we all looked up and you could see the car way down there, but the head slumped over. Uh, and it was just like, wow, it was crazy. I remember that. That was on Independence. And my mother said, stay here. She was a nurse. And you know she took even if she wasn't a nurse she the mother in her uh the compassion in her wanted to make sure though that little girl was okay it was a group out there huddled around her including the guys that uh shot at them uh a few of them rather but the girls that was with her and my mother said stay here i'm gonna check on her we're gonna be okay and my mom got out the car and just went across the street because she was wanted to make sure that little girl would be cool she'd be okay until the ambulance arrived and she stayed we stayed and we all looked outside of the car as the girl was in pain and crying her leg was broken uh, obviously when she landed that's it could have been it could have been fractured from the impact or when she landed but the drilling and pumping in her allowed her to get right back up and run but then she collapsed right at that corner um, and then the ambulance came and and uh, another nurse uh, showed up and right there as the ambulance came she told my mother go, go attend to your babies you'll be okay she's gonna be okay I got her I got her so my mom got in the car we headed back on our journey back home uh, 
in silence like wow I mean my mother seen a lot of shit growing up and she been through her own thing uh, she grew up in the same neighborhood a real rough neighborhood and, and my sisters older sisters they seen some things too but for me that was like my first my first uh, uh, sight of something so violent you know I never seen something that violent I, I we had gunshots outside our apartment but that was my first visual of exactly what type of community we were living in and exactly what type of world I would see going forward. Um, yeah. I, I don't even got no words for it. It was just crazy. You know, it was just crazy. But it was definitely not the last time. That's all I can tell you. That wasn't the last time I would I'd see something like that. And, um, but to give you a, a you know, I want to paint a picture for you. I want to stop to help you understand why, or a little bit of the history of, of gangs and why they was formed and well, the original reasons why they was formed. Um, a lot of people, uh, tend to associate gangs with violence and drugs and, 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 and more just crime in general. But a lot of people don't know the origins and specifically of the black gangs, specifically of the Chicago gangs, the original gangs from on the West side that was created to the, to the South side. They was not always territory. They was not always killing each other and fighting uh, a lot of games was originally created to protect and empower communities. They uh they they enforced violence every day, but it was rare because they had policies and laws that they created for members to follow and to adhere to. And most of the original violence that black gangs were known for prior to that timeline I just described was to protect themselves and their very existence for the right to live in those communities where a lot of the families just migrated into and they was not wanted by whatever white uh, community of men that was living there just didn't want them there. Uh, a lot of that history goes back to, you could do history on Jewtown in Chicago specifically, and they was always fighting in the streets or saying a lot of racial things. Tensions was just high. And so the gangs, a lot of gangs was formed and created in those ways right in my hometown of Chicago to protect. That was the intent of a lot of them, similar to the Black Panthers. And this happened on both the South and West side of Chicago, where a lot of Black families were experiencing many, many challenges, <clears throat> including redlining and reverse redlining practices to no job opportunities, unemployment, segregation, housing discrimination, poor education in the school systems, uh, the absence of many fathers due to incarceration and more, especially during the timeline I came on. A lot of murders was happening, but I can go on and on and on. It's just so many problems, so many complex problems and challenges existed to that before 
my my birth and before my upbringing and all the way up into me being born in that era and that timeline to this day a lot of challenges where parents just to have two parents <laughs> in your household you can deem that as a luxury it's just not normal let alone one parent being in a household could still be in some scenarios deemed as a luxury especially in the 80s and 90s because a lot of the the single a lot of mothers were single singles working mothers and working most of them work trade uh, like nurse jobs where they would pick up multiple shifts to provide for their families and the medium income like was on average less than 15 uh, to 10k it was just it was just a yeah it was a challenge so these gangs was formed to try to assist in a lot of this a lot of this assist with a lot of these problems and and then in and then in the 80s and well late 70s and 80s but the introduction of drugs in the community that a specific drug in the community um, really started to uh have an impact on gangs and more so things that happened in my upbringing things you will hear me speaking about from not having a father around to a mother working multiple jobs just to provide for us and her uh, meaning her kids is is normal with a lot of families and and we didn't view ourselves as victims. Many people or products of our environments. We just, we didn't have that terminology then. We didn't view that. We just figured this was the norm and we will get through it and work our asses off. You know, we had a one bedroom apartment, stayed on uh, the west side of Chicago. I remember all those great memories. We didn't have much. It was a one bedroom, me, myself, my two sisters, older sisters. I was the youngest. We lived in the living room, it stayed on a mattress, one mattress and also a let out bed mattress. That, when I tell you that, um, <clears throat> that apartment was infested with rodents. I'm talking about roaches and mice, but they was everywhere. It was crazy. It was great. It was, I, I remember taking bathtubs with my, it, it was either me or I, I, you, I get in the bathtub or I was directed to get in the bathtub if I was being watched by my auntie or anybody else. Could we reuse the bathtub? We hot water ran out like in two minutes. So, uh, or, well, once you run that one cycle of hot water and ran out and, Forget about getting it back hot for like 30 minutes to an hour or whatever. It was crazy to had a poor plumbing system that we just had to reuse the hot water a lot. And so one kid would take a bath and another. But I remember just seeing we had so many rodents. Well, with respect to roaches, <laughs> they was floating on the bathtub. Baby roaches, different, at least always four or five, just floating dead. 
or float in the swim and save their lives. And, and we would get in and out. But again, to us kids, we didn't care about that. It was normal to us. We wasn't like, ah, look at that. It, it was, it was normal. Hell, even the family, we lived in a family building, every unit, it was about four units had dogs and cats too. And I, I think it's, it's actually in retrospect, when you think about it, not just our families, but a lot of families growing up will always take on these strays, these dogs and cats. And now today people deem them as rescues or they'll go into a, uh, a, a dog pound or a shelter to rescue an animal that was abused or come from some type of background where this situation wasn't um, ideal. It was not traditional with respect to breeding, but we, even as poor as we were, we living in poverty, we had a building full of animals. And uh, uh, we had a dog named Susie. My auntie and them had a dog, a couple of dogs, a couple of German Shepherds I was really close to, Snow and Puppy. Uh, but all these, these animals were never purchased. They was just strays like everybody else family in that, in that neighborhood, in the hood that we lived in. Same thing. They had dogs and cats that, again, people deem them as rescues today, but we've been, <laughs> a lot of black families been taking on strays and rescuing animals from as, as long as I can remember. But it's just an interesting thought to remember that fun memory where those animals was part of the family and we fed, fed them scraps and whatever we can, provide at that time i mean they would walk up to our apartments and our buildings and it just became a family dog or a cat so to show you their the response that they would that they was appreciative to even have a show, a home to sleep in amongst with us they were these cats would go out and bring back wildlife whether it be birds or other rodents like rats as a as a token they would leave it at the front door to our apartment. Uh, so I always thought that was interesting. But there he was living in this this building on the west side of Chicago. And all we had was each other. My mother worked her ass off. She hustled. She was making about, I would say in those days, less than 15000 a year. Um... So she had to pick up as many shifts and she could because we was, we was hurting. We was hurting. But us kids didn't know any better. You know, we had that generation of kids, myself and my sisters and my cousins, uh, we made do with what we had and uh, did all we could to have some I don't know what you want to call it, a childhood experience, whatever the case may be. But to us going through some of the things we went through and some of the things we would experience going forward, um, again, was something normal. And even seeing loved ones eventually die because the men, the men in my family and <clears throat> in my neighborhood, but yeah, the men in my family, I come from a line of men that are, uh, that was pretty much you can consider like an endangered species. They were either in jail uh, or they were uh, murdered 
for one reason or another, we're on the run. Multiple, multiple challenges and multiple scenarios. I can go on and on and on with a lot of episodes involving the line of men that I come from in respect to my family line that included a lot of gangs well-known gang members and drug dealers so for you to understand that I'm going to take you back to one of my first introductions into a lifestyle that really will eventually be the reason for my own downfall. Um, and one of those memories specifically is in my relationship with my cousin, Booby, who was an amazing, to me, <clears throat> he was an amazing, kind-hearted young man that just wanted to live his life and he was trying to figure it out and he was faced with a lot of challenges like a lot of us was a lot of people in that community was and booby paid the most attention to me with respect to the men in my family he paid a lot of attention to a lot of us he was the oldest when it came to us uh, when it came to the boys and the girls and he really loved us all but we used to pick me up and uh, I remember riding through the streets of Chicago riding in this Regal bumping MWA speakers aloud and Booby was fresh too to give you a physical description of what Booby looked like Booby was dark skin he had a curly fro if you remember the days before Michael Jackson bleached his skin around the Thriller time, a little bit before that, Booby favored him. He favored him a lot. And he stayed dressed from head to toe in the latest gear, Nike or whatever gear brand name was at, was doing it at that time. He He had it. He was in jumpsuit. He had gold ropes. He had a, a curly fro. <laughs> uh, man, Booby was fresh to death. Uh, he was dope boy fresh to death. And I remember just being in the passenger side of the seat. He was the first male that I thought the world of, of meaning. Um, in fact, he was... When I now think about it, the only male that I looked up to ever that I put up into that spotlight that can do no wrong. That was someone that I truly aspired to be like, because I would eventually find my own way. But I will also eventually find out that humans are humans. We we make mistakes. We're not perfect. But that impression that Booby had on me as a child something that I will always remember because there was he was grooming me to 
become who I was going to become um, and do things that I was going to eventually do. My relationship directly with him, I never really even spoke publicly about to my family or anybody else. I mean, sure, they knew of our bond and he had his own bonds with everybody else in the family. But me and Booby was like, I was like his little brother. And uh, he uh, showed me a lot of things. He had he had money, he had cars, he had women. I wanted to be just like Booby. And I knew he was slaying and I knew he was doing something that he he uh, shouldn't have been doing. But I wanted to be like him so much that one of my fondest memories was uh, going into his place, his apartment. I remember uh, he was on the phone and I was like, because he was always telling me uh, he going <laughs> to. He was always going to tell me he's going to get my hair. I had a curly, I had a brown afro. And uh, he was always like, I'm going to hook it up like mine's little man. I got you. I got you. I wanted to shine just like him. And he always told me that he would hook it up for me. And I was always begging him like, Booby, when you going to hook it up? When you going to hook it up? And he's like, little man, I got you. I got you. And this one time I, I just came into the place to his into the pad and um he was on the phone and he was on the phone with some chick he was like little man i get to you in one second hold on i was like you told me today was the day he's like i got you just be patient and i was impatient <laughs> he was and while he had his back turned while he was on this long this phone that had a long extension cord he was walking uh in a different direction so i was looking around i, I went into the uh into the bathroom and looked into the medicine cabinet for I was looking for that yellow bottle that he used to use I think the brand name at the time was called Jeffrey Curl I can't remember uh but it was yellow with red writing on it and I knew that was the thing he would that was the bottle he would spray to make his hair shiny and and I felt like made him look like a million bucks and I couldn't find it so I walked out of the bathroom and then I was just looking around in the kitchen and lo and behold, I seen this yellow, I seen that yellow bottle directly on top of the fridge. And I was looking at the fridge like, wow, there it is. <laughs> so I, I took the uh, one of the, the stools or uh, the, the kitchen chairs and pushed it up against the, the fridge and I climbed on top of the chair. I reached for it. And I grabbed that bottle. I was about five, six at the time. Uh, and I grabbed the bottle and climbed back down. And it's just like I, I felt like I got to the end of the rainbow because I was looking at the bottle like, wow, I'm getting ready to do this. So because he was too busy right at that moment. And I went back into the bathroom and I got and I looked in the mirror and I climbed up on like a little the little uh, toilet to look over at the mirror that was hanging above the uh, sink and I just started spraying this activator in my hair like I think I sprayed maybe 50 times until I started smelling something that was strong and then I I became familiar and then I knew what the smell was because my hair started burning too and then I smelled it I was like, this smells like roach spray. 
And just as soon as I seen that, Booby came in. Look, man, what you doing? What you doing? And I told him, I was like, I was just spraying his activator in my house, you know, trying to get my hair like yours. And he was like, he smelled my hair. He's like, you, where did you get that from? I was like, the top of the fridge. He's like, oh my God. He's like, that's, that's not, that's not activated. That's roach spray. <laughs> and next thing you know, he grabbed me like with the quickness and, and and ran the hot, ran some water, a shower, put me in the shower, started shampooing my head. He just like was frantic trying to get this out of my head. Cause he knew my mom, my mother was gonna beat his ass. And <laughs> but uh, you know, obviously he cared too. He was like trying to wash this out of my hair. And uh, yeah, that so that goes to show you that memory specifically uh, goes to show you the thoughts and the the thoughts surrounding my uh, views on booby and, and how I really, really wanted to be like him. And he was one of the most known uh, D-boys on the west side of Chicago. Um, a lot of things. He was controlling different territories and, and doing his thing. That man was doing his thing. He was, he was slinging, uh, uh, doing his thing. Eventually, Booby was sadly uh, shot in the back of the head. Uh, and it was coming out of uh, his uh, girlfriend at the time or his, his, his son's mother at the time, uh, Project Housing Building. And without me going into details on that, but yeah, they executed him because he was getting money. And... Sometimes when you're getting so much money in the hood and you may indirectly step on people's toes, there's jealousy involved. You have to sometimes pay what they call rent on corners and stuff. Uh, a lot of different reasons where you may find yourself always forever looking over your shoulder. Everybody goes through that experience, even if you're a low level soldier in an organization there's always consequences there's always challenges and things you will face in those type of environments that you have to be ready for and uh yeah they killed booby just like they killed a lot of others that i would not go into details about but they killed a lot of other people that was close to me growing up so um, again, this is Chicago in the 80s. A lot of stuff was happening. I mean, those communities, gangs were growing. New gangs were being formed within organizations and uh, fighting was happening on all both the west side of Chicago and south side of Chicago. Just a lot of things that were happening. And the community in that time was starting to even get worse deteriorate we used to have the corner stores and where kids can go hang out and play video games but that started disappearing as the gangs grew and more people joined the gangs and more drugs flooded the communities businesses small businesses were impacted kids didn't really have too much where to go 
and a lot of us was a lot of a lot of kids were joining these gangs too because when you don't have an outlet or a resource center or any other places for these kids to go to hang out at or form some type of sub-community one of the other options is to join a gang and to get involved into troubles. Uh, my mother recognized this stuff early. She grew up in these neighbor neighborhoods as well. She didn't want us, her kids, to to continue to experience some of the same things she experienced growing up in the very same neighborhoods and to continue going to a public school system that really didn't have too much value in her eyes for her kids as it was slowly deteriorating. My mother was with my father. They they had their conflicts, but she communicated this to him, her partner, her husband. At this time, it is time to change. It is time to grow. It's time to uh, leave the hood, do what they need to do. And she encouraged him to save money to help her work towards getting out of that environment so her and him and us kids can have a better life at least in a better neighborhood of Chicago in response to that my father wasn't on board he would continue to run the streets continue to not come home he was cheating on my mother he was doing a lot of things uh working working and hustling these different these different jobs and at that time my mother we didn't have a car we was on public transportation a lot my mother would drop me off at school drop the girls off at school and go to work and the public transportation stops and many things was happening where women were getting raped people were getting robbed my mom was vulnerable vulnerable she was raped when she was younger and now these these things were happening on public transportation and instead uh helping out to get a family car which she asked my father she would if he would help them get a car so she can get to point A and point B in response to that he did the opposite he called my mother up and he said hey Reed come down in like an hour I got a surprise and she's like what is the surprise and he's like I got a surprise and he's like I'm gonna blow the horn and my mother smiled thinking this man bought a car for us he was starting to finally get on board and contribute to this family, to this unit. So an hour goes by. 
horn blows. Me and my mother and the and the, the girls, we all rushed downstairs. And I would never forget my mother's face of disappointment. Just the sadness in her face. The hurt in her face. I won't ever see that face again later on in life when I sadly caused that face, which we will get to. But this time, it was my father. He pulled up in a white two-door Corvette. That's not a family car. For those of you who don't know, a Corvette is a sports car. It's a small sports car. So he, instead of buying a family car, he selfishly bought a sports car for him. And I don't even know with what money. <laughs> Considering the fact, shit, we were staying in this one-bedroom shitty-ass apartment full of roaches and more. But you have the audacity to pull up. In a sports car. Oh man, that hurt. Uh, that really hurt. That was the green light. That was forever where things changed from there. From that point, my mother worked tirelessly. Yeah, they had it out, but no need for details. They was already on the rocks. My father left, and rightfully so. They They split up. And from that point, my mom worked her ass off night and day. There was times I didn't even see my mother. She picked up shifts after shifts, worked at the hospital clinics. She even picked up a different employer working for the nursing home, worked and worked and worked while Monty would watch us in the building or my sister would participate and watch, participate and watch us, but it just it was just me and my two sisters for a while. My mom's just worked, so she could continue to save money and get us in a better neighborhood, which she eventually did. She worked hard, saved her money, and her and my auntie both put their money together. And they bought a building together in the better part of the west side in a community known as the Austin community. Yeah. They actually bought a building for the first time owners, both of them. A two flat that cost them so much, so much. And some would argue that it was because of reverse redlining, but they would eventually... They would eventually lose that building, but not before we was able to get that experience, the kids, or what it felt like to live temporarily in a, a better part of the West Side neighborhood. Yeah. So we packed our things. My mom, the girls, my aunt, my cousins, and we left for a better part of the West Side. Now, we're going into the 90s. Yeah. 
this is now the 90s, the golden era. For me, it was a uh, great, great time to be alive. Uh, it's a great time always to be alive, but the 90s was the time that we was getting it. Yeah. The 90s was also the time that I had my first drink. <clears throat> I started having sex. The time I served my first pack. The time I was starting to blossom into this young man. Um, and I was young as fuck, but the things I was doing at my age, including that very first time that I had my first drink, I was about 11 when I had my first drink. I was in the back of our building, hanging out with my cousin. Uh, he was with one of his, his close homies, and they were drinking. They were all, every weekend, these dudes would just smash 40 ounces like it was nothing. Uh, and it was about 16, 17 at the time. They was <laughs> always drinking their ass off. They was drinking. And they gave me my first bottle of a ball 40 ounce because I was trying to hang with the big boys. Um, and I was well beyond my years of maturity. And so they trust me. And I drank it. I drank the entire 40 ounce. And the next thing I wanted to do was just run. I remember feeling that buzz and that high. And I was just like, I got to go run. And my cousin was like, where you going? I just, like, I don't know. And I was just like jumping up and down. And I ran through the neighborhood for like three miles. I kid you not. And this was around the time I was playing football, junior junior football. I put myself in a football league. I taught myself how to f play football because I didn't have a father around, but I taught myself how to throw a spiral and all of that. And I was starting to blossom as a young athlete. And, yeah, you put that in my system. The, the, I didn't want to do nothing but do athletic things, at least me. That's what I felt <laughs> like doing and I ran around the neighborhood. It was a crazy experience. And <clears throat> and I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you that I didn't enjoy it. Because I did enjoy it. So from that point, going forward, I would, every, every couple weeks or once a month, at least get my drink on with my cousins. Or even in junior high, <clears throat> me and my boys, we would drink. They would smoke. I was never a smoker. I, I tried a weed, and, you know, they are passing around. and But it just wasn't my thing, you know. I'm not a creature of habit. I'm not the way I'm built and engineered. And what I learned over the years is just that I, <clears throat> I don't like drugs being in my system. I don't like anything being in my system, and. I never took any drugs. The, the only drug that far as illegal drugs and illicit drugs or any mood altering or anything to get you high. I never did took no drugs. The only drug that I had experience with, with was weed. And like I said, during my experiment, experimenting with weed in those years or with my homies, when I was in junior high, they was getting high and I just chuck. I drink. <clears throat> Uh, and I, I'll smoke with them, but it just, 
it was something that I just really didn't desire. Uh, and even down to the alcohol, I did love the buzz of alcohol. I did. I'm not going to lie to you. So I would drink. And this was during the time we were coming of age. Getting, and this was the time I served my first pack. And this is the time where I was uh, part of a gang known as the Four Corner Hustlers. And let me pause for a minute to explain the influences that was happening in the 90s. Uh, just to give you a idea where a lot of people from my culture, a lot of people from my neighborhoods and communities and upbringings, some of the upbringings and even people that wasn't from, from those communities. But I just want to kind of paint a picture and with today's influences compared to then. I think this is a very important important thought to, to put in your head. Today, you have social media. You have all lines of communication. You have influential people. You have influencers. You have people that connect through their social media channels and platforms and communicate to people all over the world. It's a beautiful thing. It really is. So what their day-to-day -day activities may be or whatever they're promoting, whether it's through YouTube, Instagram, you name it, or whatever they're educating people about or selling people, it doesn't matter. Their lifestyle that they're putting online has have an influence on people from all over the world. That's what's happening. Social media is that main tool to connect and communicate and have impact, right? <clears throat> we didn't have social media in the 90s. What we had was something just as powerful. It was called music. So hear me out with this. Music. If you take what a lot of the kids from the hood was doing, or a lot of kids from any type of community was doing, whether they were selling dope or partying or whatever the case may be, they was doing this, but also receiving lines of communication through music and lyrics where that type of behavior of what they was doing was uh, acceptable. You have that latest artist rapping about money, hoes, and clothes, selling dope, doing this and that. And then you might have somebody that's actually living that lifestyle, but listening to that music. They figuring this is the norm. Everybody doing this, they, they getting it. That is something to think about, meaning hip-hop and rap has had a lot of positive influences on communities but it has had a lot of negative influences as well i don't think a lot of people will openly admit that but 
during that era in the 90s, especially when a lot of these artists were starting to get deals and they were starting to get big platforms and the radio airways was just filled with dope boy music, <laughs> filled with things that we was doing, we was getting. And it, it just, it was a recipe for bad influence uh, on a lot of people. But yeah, a lot of, I just wanted to paint that picture for you. A lot of kids and a lot of people that was in that time frame and doing those things would continue to do those things because music really kind of programmed them to keep up that life and and kind of unconsciously made them feel like they were inferior and, and just as if it was the norm or if it was okay uh, to practice some of these behaviors. But it wasn't. The 90s was full of that, from music influence to fashion to the cars and everything. It was just like a true era of flashy, flamboyant, fast money. And a lot of that was happening on the west side of Chicago. That era at 16 to 20 was was a crazy time for me. Uh, really transitioning into a young man or just doing things that at 16 men in their 20s don't even do. And um partying, kicking it. I even went to the Freak Neat that year uh, when I was 16. Went down to Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> Drove down there uh, with my boys, a few of my boys, some partners, and we kicked it, had a good time, and it was a crazy time. It was, like I said, 16 doing things that most 16-year-olds don't do, help most people men in their 20s don't do and this was like the time where we used to have the strip on Madison Ave in the west side of Chicago where everybody on the weekends from Friday to Sunday especially when the weather was warm out in time the weather got warm Chicago got got hot people was getting popped off at that time at that point I already Lost a lot of close friends to gun violence and gang violence. and But we used to hang out on the strip of the street called Madison. They had it on the south side, too. They had Stony Island. Cats used to, everybody would pull up and they whip and just showboat. Everybody would park their car. And it was a line of cars on both sides of the street. <laughs> Everybody from Chicago probably remember this by the Rose Bar by McDonald's lined up all the way from basically Laramie area, but Laramie, pretty much Laramie all the way down to Cicero. It was just like a strip where everybody was kicking it, having a good time. You get out your car, police wasn't bothering nobody, just drinking, everybody out flashing hanging out in front of, in front of their luxury cars and 
just having a good time. And that's what we was doing. Did that for years. Especially once I was out of high school. Yeah, that became the routine. Hustle hard. Real hard every week, every day, every hour. And splurge, bend corners, which is what we called it at the time. Pop bottles. Have a good time. That was the routine. That was us doughboys getting it every single week. To give you an idea of what our pregames look like at a park, pull up <clears throat> in a little circle, be about seven, eight cars. Always two cats to a car. We just all catch up on a week what we was doing and what's been happening, what's the latest news in the streets happening. Drinking, everybody drinking on the the latest liquor, <laughs> whether it have been, uh, I think, Chris, yeah, Cristal was popping then. We all got bottles of Cristal. And those bottles, because the rappers, all because of influences of the rappers, right? Those bottles was running about three to 400 a pop. We had them by the cases, just drinking them. And then Belvedere to Hennessy, you name it, all the top shelf liquor that was popping and marketed to us through this music and we were spending it on like everybody else you know you see the power of the influence that the music had that was crazy truly crazy truly in retrospect something that could have been um and that we had conscious music don't get me wrong there was conscious music that empowered people but the commercial music at the time had a lot of negative impact and really didn't plant positive seeds. But here it is. It had a big influence on a lot of us young men getting that money, uh, behaving the way we was behaving, down to even the fashion and what we bought in jewelry. That was a, a time to be someone that celebrated their successes on materialistic things <laughs> and you can see the disconnect you can see the damage it was doing to us as men to our communities and to what we believe in even to this day a lot of that stuff has a bad impact but that was a powerful tool that men in suits seen a way to tap into that dollar of the young black youth and, and the, the D boys from we talking like I said alcohol to jewelry to clothes clothing that, that was a whole nother whole nother uh, influence because you had rappers talking about designer clothes and stuff like that and we all spend money on this stuff. Uh, one of my favorites, though, <clears throat> that would rock. I'm just trying to give you a picture of me and what I was doing with my money irresponsibly. Uh, I was one of my favorite 
things to wear was what was called a Kuji sweater. And Kuji sweaters came in a timeline, especially when Biggie, I was a big fan of Biggie Smalls, a huge fan. But when he started really pushing the idea like Kuji sweaters, this and that, Kuji sweaters became like a symbol of status for all the D-boys doing good. And to understand the value of the Kuji sweater, back then, those sweaters ranged anywhere between 400 to like $1,200 a pop. I had over 50 sweaters in all colors and flavors and different styles, along with the hat to go with it. <laughs> it was this soft cotton piece together, and you can Google Coochie sweaters to see what they look like. But yeah, I had over 50 of them. And, uh, and, and to understand that, the grab stat, you can do the math. That's the type of money I was getting. That's the type of thing I was doing, buying Coochie sweaters, buying Peli Pels and Averexes and Pelly Pell's another whole nother symbol uh, of status. Uh, they was leather coats that range anywhere between 800 to like 1500 a pop. Uh, very expensive leather coats. And while my peers would be rocking in the Chicago dead in the winter, they'd be rocking minks and stuff. I was just never attracted to minks or any of those fur coats with trimmings and stuff like that. This was never my thing, but... I did rock a lot of, I had tons of Peli Pels and Averexes, jewelry, name it. I used to shop at this spot called T's and B's. It was like a place on the west side that if you was a D-boy, uh, somebody that was in the streets doing good for yourself and your crew, that was the place to go shopping. It was like the hood version of Gucci where you go shop for the latest threads, the latest shoes, kicks, jeans, the latest gear, and of course the latest latest coochies for me. They'll smile every time they see me or, or somebody in my crew or anybody that was known. It was, you had people from all over the west side to even some people from the south side would drive to T's and B's just to pick up some gear. It became like a little hub of who's who up in the dope game. And I walk in and just spend like thousands and thousands of dollars on gear like it was nothing. Why? Because whoever was popping and hot as a hip-hop artist at that time, whatever they was rapping about, if Jay-Z was rapping about throwback jerseys, guess who got throwback jerseys? All the D-Boys. If Nas was talking about latest Abraxes or just getting money even in his conscious rap he dropped things about different things we go get it D-Boys go get it whoever was hot like top five artists dropping that information on what respect to how they was living their lifestyle D-Boys just had to go get it just had to rock it because they can do it from the rim sitting on low and harsh 20s and 22s to all your your luxury cars you name it they was getting it we was getting it balling out of control yeah just leaving t's and b's with bags 
Wow. Rolexes this was on our wrists. Platinum chain. Multiple chains. Studded diamond earrings. All of that. Just bags and bags and bags. Yeah. I want to start for a moment though again. To point out the reference. Of the influence music had. On my community. The community. Of. Young D-boys. Or young men. Young black men. As I mentioned earlier, hip-hop and rap did a lot for the community. And a lot of positive things was communicated through some incredible artists. But a lot of music, too. And it's not their fault. Nah, nah. It's not their fault at all. It's not none of the artists' fault at all. But this former advertisement and lyrics talking about brands and talking about a lifestyle conditioned a lot of young men from our culture that was actually doing these things conditioned them to continue to do these things and and what I'm saying is this that form of communication, many artists did you did use their platform as a form to educate and, and communicate change. But with respect to commercial hip hop and the bigger artists, man, it could have been a lot better. And nothing against those artists at all. You are responsible for doing what you have to do as a person, whether you receive that information and you go out there and do it or you you don't do it. But I just wanted to point out how powerful that influence of music in those days to DBs, corner boys, to anybody that was from that culture and that era. Because that was, the look, the 90s was the year of the dope boy. It was. It was it was a golden era for DBs and a golden era for uh, rap artists. It was getting deals. And they was getting the platform. They was getting the airwaves. And it just... It created these monsters. Uh, not, not to mention that a lot of them artists did come from the same backgrounds. They came from doing what they was uh, talking about in lyrics and all you have to do is give them the mic and they're going to spit it and get paid they're going to get paid to talk about things that DBs was doing <laughs> but I don't think it was productive now that I look back on it yeah influence could be very powerful so we was doing that money 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 that's what it was about repeat shop party get all your cars washed 
sit nice, hit the strip, make more moves, enforce things, and repeat. Yeah. That was, that was, uh, that was during uh, the peak of many things, including the fact that I was getting ready to finish my undergrad degree. I was in school. Also, I had a entry level position in healthcare where I made a really big impact. Really big impact. And my former lifestyle and things that I still had surrounding me in some type of capacity despite me doing the best I can to get as far as away as I can because believe me I was working on it I was working on it I wasn't completely out 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 but I was working on it and the game brought me back in and before you know it I was surrounded by FBI, DEA, and more. Yeah. So I was indicted on drug charges. First time offender. And I eventually was required to serve time. I was sentenced to some years in prison. It was there uh, serving my time is when I decided to remove meat from my my diet it was there in prison when I decided to grow and to change my life around and to become something better than what I was prior to prison it was there in prison when I truly found myself and who I am and what I'm really really am about and I started the first week there in prison. I was sitting in my cell trying to make sense of it all. I, I'm i a big believer in karma. I'm a big believer that the universe brings us to experiences or put us in these these scenarios and experience these things for a reason. Um, and this was my time to experience something that I never experienced before. I'd never been arrested before. I'd never been incarcerated. All of this was new to me. And I feared my mental health. I feared what would happen with respect to me uh, mentally. I didn't fear the men in prison. I didn't fear nothing in there. I just feared me being locked up in a closed 
off environment or in, in a restricted environment and how I will respond to it because uh, I had claustrophobia. Um, and that's because as a kid, when I went swimming one time with my cousins and them, they thought it would be funny and cool to, and I was the, I was the smallest and the youngest and the most fair skinned out of the group of the men, the, the boys growing up. And they used to pick on me because of that. Um, I would have to always defend myself because people in that culture and, and the way I was brought up always felt like the fair-skinned men or fair-skinned people are the softest or the weakest. That's, to this day, sometimes problematic in a lot of different communities and families growing up in a black culture and other cultures too, not just a black culture, but they tend to believe that just because you're fair skinned, you can't defend yourself or you're not considered tough or hard. That's what they deemed it as. You're not hard and stuff. So you always had a point to prove. I always had a point to prove because I was fair skinned. Uh, and I was handsome to a lot of people and they used to call me a pretty boy. And, but, they didn't know this pretty boy had them things, I had them hands, so I had to fight a lot. And it started with my cousin and then my, my family. And during this one time, we went swimming at the little Follett Park. They thought it would be cool to put me in a locker. They ganged up on me and jumped on me. And uh, it was about four of them pushed me into this locker, shut the locker door, put a lock on it, and went off to go swimming and here I was in this locker room stuck in a locker all black uh, couldn't move my, I could barely move in there I was I was about I was about uh, six or seven at the time and I just started panicking I started yelling at the top of my, my lungs my voice screaming kicking and with all my might, just started drilling at that locker. Like, boom, boom, boom. Like, let me out, let me out. I was screaming at the top of my lungs because I felt like I was being suffocated. And eventually, one of the lifeguards at the pool ring heard my screams after maybe 20 minutes and broke open that lock, and I collapsed right into him. I felt like I out and... I was full of tears and I just wanted to kill my cousins. And then my knuckles was like bloody red all over both of them. Cause I was, I was hitting that locker with all my might cause I thought I was going to die. So that's how I formed that phobia of being claustrophobic. So I feared that going into the system, like, damn, I don't know if I'm going to be able to deal with this. Cause I, that's that's jail, you know. I know nothing about jail. I just heard about it from people that have been in and out of it in my family to just like everybody else from what Hollywood might have put up on the on the TV screens and stuff. So I knew nothing about going into the system because I never had that experience. But here I was in the system, uh, a statistic in my cell trying to figure out what does all of this mean 
and I open myself up. I'm not religious. I, I tell people all this time I'm not, but <clears throat> I am spiritual. I do believe in a higher energy connect. I feel like there is something greater than me. I'm only talking for myself. I'm not talking about anybody else own experience. I just feel like there's definitely power, a very powerful force of energy. And I opened myself up that day, that first week, the very first week I was in there. I opened up my, my thoughts. I opened up my hands and I had a conversation with the universe. I had an intimate conversation. I spoke out into the universe. I did, um, from my thoughts to even moving my lips, trying to figure out what was going on and speaking, speaking to the universe, like trying to have an intimate conversation, like show me what, what is happening? What what's going on? What is it that I need to do to get out of this situation? Because I was supposed to be doing five years. Uh, my sentence was basically five. And that doesn't include what I was given outside of supervision once I was to be released. Uh, but I couldn't see it. Like I was a first time offender. Never been in trouble with the law. And here I was serving some years. And everything pointed to this one childhood memory when I was eight years old. That moment. <clears throat> it was like a light bulb went off in my head. Pointed to this memory when I was sitting across from my mother at, at, at our kitchen table. At that time, I was eight. She would feed us chicken wings a lot. And she, it was fried chicken wings. She put this plate of chicken wings in front of me. And I was looking at the chicken wings. Then I looked at my arms. Then I looked back at the chicken wings. Then I looked at my mother. Then I looked at the chicken wings and I pushed the plate towards her. And I was like, I don't want this. And she looked at me and she said, what do you mean? I said, I, I, I don't want to eat that. She said, well, what do you mean you don't want to eat that? I said, they look like little bitty arms. And she gave me a look like, huh? <laughs> like a look of confusion where she didn't understand what I meant. I said, it looked like little bitty arms and I'm not going to eat that. I already was having problems eating chicken wings up until that point because I will always dig between the tendons and the, the cartilage and the bones just to get to the meat. And I hate it the way how slimy it felt. And I hate seeing that dried up blood. It just really uh, disgusted me. And I was at that point where I was done. I didn't want them. And so I was like, I'm not gonna eat this. And she was like, well then you're not gonna eat. My mother, a very strong independent woman, no nonsense type of woman. But I'm a product of her. This is one thing I did take out to her, to speak my mind, no matter who it is. So when she's like, I'm not going to eat, I was like, well, then I'm not going to eat. That's the reply I gave her. We bumped heads. She eventually compromised and ended up going to 
the store to buy me some fish sticks. And I ate a lot of fish sticks growing up. You would think I was a pescatarian, but she would going forward buy products where as long as I didn't see the cartilage or anything like that, I was okay with eating it. Like I wasn't, chicken wings was just not my thing. It, it was just not my thing. But that connection at that moment was in my thoughts while I was sitting in my, my cell. And I'm, it just made sense right then and there. And this is when I was locked up, I was 20, uh, 22, 23. This was during a time in early 2000 where we didn't have social media. We didn't have documentaries. We didn't have none of this stuff to influence people to go plant-based or to why they should eat plant-based meat. We didn't have these, none of this stuff. This was 18 years ago. And, but there I was making a conscious connection where I was like, I don't want to be a part of anything, having anything to do with destroying anything itself. Because up until that point, I was a very reckless, self-centered, bad human being that did some bad things, including selling drugs into the community. So I did like a hard reset and denounced all of that. I didn't want to have anything to do with any harm to anything I did. I created this mantra for myself. Like if it requires harm, then no, I was not a part of that. I didn't want to be a part of that. And I made a promise because I wanted to get home. I wanted to get out of this situation. I felt like some people go to jail. Some people go through hit rock bottom and go through challenges in their lives where they don't, they repeat the behavior. They continue to do things after they get out of that situation. It only took for that one time for me to be touched by the feds for me to be like, nah, this ain't the life of me. I don't want to have nothing to do with this. And, and this was my feeling. The universe was like, is this what you want to do? And I didn't. I denounced it all. I I did. I I just couldn't do it. I didn't want to be a part of that way of thinking at all. And I stopped eating meat. I was like, I'm not going to eat meat anymore. And um, I stopped eating meat. I stopped thinking the way I was thinking. I, I didn't. From my thoughts of once I do get home, no more selling drugs, no more being around negative people I didn't want to have shit to do with none of that I just wanted to run away as far as possible if I can from any negative energy bringing me down to behave that way and it was like a 800 ton piece of rock out from my chest when I denounced that I felt instantly better like I never describe the people that feel in that when you when you denounce 
doing evil things. When you when you come full circle with who you are and what you were about and what you want to be about and what you're going to do about it. It's one of the greatest feelings in the world. I felt relieved. I did. I felt like ah, no more. I'm I'm done. I'm done with that shit. No more old scores to settle. I'm not about that life. So I denounced it. And I stopped eating meat. And that was the beginning of a beautiful creative energy that really came out of me. You know, my body transformed within two months into eating plant-based. I went from being over 250 pounds down to like 190, 185. I lost all that weight. I was working out in there, but I had no idea that me removing meat products or animal products from my diet was going to do this to my body because I wasn't doing it to look a certain way. I wasn't doing it for my health. I had no idea, if anything, I thought that I was probably going to have some health complications by removing meat, but it did the opposite. It didn't, it improved my, 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 uh, my energy within myself. I physically transformed, uh, and I was productive in a way that I tell people to this day, if you ever want to feel like the closest thing a superhero will feel in one of these movies, Remove meat from your diet and watch that transformation. Watch how you feel. You get up feeling great. That experience, I can't recapture because I've been doing it now for 18 years. But at that time, that experience for those first couple months, me transition when I just instantly removed the meat, but just seeing my body transfer over the next few months up into the year. Oh, man, it was... uh the closest thing I ever felt to being like a superhero. It was, it was almost like a, a shot of uh, uh, drugs or anything people do to alter their moods. That was, that was the ultimate mood. So it was, it was amazing. It really was. I have no better way to describe it. You just can't put it into words. The feeling you felt. And, I survived on this diet because in prison because I ate a lot of carbs. I ate simple and complex carbs, both. I would trade my meat protein with my cellmates or my cellies in exchange for their carbs. So they would take terms. I, I, I stayed in the cell with uh, three other cellies and Every day they would rotate. Like one day one on one changed the meat, the next day the other one changed the meat. So if they were serving something like pot roast or chicken or buffalo meat on the line, I would take that meat protein and just exchange it. They give me their carbs, and that's how I survived. I ate that because I didn't have much money coming in on the books, so my commissary was low, and uh, my mom sent what she could, but. She wasn't able to send that much, but she held me down as much as she could. 
no doubt. Uh, but for the most part, I just depended on some carbs and the money I spent at the commissary was on other carbs, pasta, oatmeal, uh, fruits, bananas, oranges. And one of my favorites, Hagen dogs ice cream. I was vegetarian. Uh, I, I, in prison, I wasn't completely vegan. My diet was primarily vegan, but again, this is 18 years ago. I didn't know what a vegan was. I didn't know what a vegetarian was. I just knew I didn't want to eat meat. I felt like dairy and eggs was not meat or any animal products. I felt like that was okay at the time because I was ignorant to this whole lifestyle change. But to me, not eating flesh or meat was enough for me to be at peace with this new lifestyle. Uh, but yeah, when they did serve dairy products or well, they didn't serve dairy products, but like cereal, I did eat cereal in there. Um, I ate oatmeal in there. Uh, I ate a lot of oatmeal in there filled with bananas, peanut butter. We used to make homemade burritos. We used to take the chips like Doritos and crunch them up and pour like hot 180 water in there. Sometimes homies would put powdered milk in there and mix that up as a paste, as a burrito and put like tons of ramen noodles in there with chopped up veggies. And I, I, they would put their macros and meat up in there and tuna, whatever they wanted to put up in there. But I would just put the chopped up veggies in or like squeeze uh, nacho cheese on that if we had that or, but I made this vegetarian wrap. I would eat a lot of those. I would eat tons of pasta, tons of pasta. Cause they always were serving pasta a lot. Spaghetti night was like damn near twice a week. <laughs> in the system mashed potatoes I eat a lot of mashed potatoes but my primary source of fuel especially when I started getting into like I was training every day I was hitting the gym like hitting what they call um, the yard and the weight pile hitting that three times a day with my car and my primary fuel I would consume would be oatmeal before that or I shake oatmeal up with bananas and put some peanut butter in there and shake it up with some water and, and just consume that like a smoothie it was we just doing what we can to eat because we we didn't have access to nothing better we didn't have supplements and shit we didn't have machines to make smoothies and this is prison uh I don't know what it's like there today but this was back in the day but I did my best to eat uh, healthy because I started by working out while I was in, in in prison. Before I was leading up into my incarceration, I was living that dope boy life, getting that money, eating late and gaining weight, but I wasn't physically active. I wasn't working out. I stopped working out after high school and from the high school into my couple of years in college to getting arrested and indicted. It was just a shitty lifestyle that put on some weight and uh, led me to be over 250 pounds. So I had to, I had to retrain my, my body. I had to re-engineer it. And I also had to rethink the way I 
view things and and I would read through books. We would trade books. People would get books sent in to them or trade books in the system. Uh, these different help books to these different self-help books, whether we're talking 48 Laws of Power to the latest Men's Health magazine. We would rotate that and read the latest articles and what was findings. And I would just like absorb this information. I was like a sponge absorbing this information on health and wellness. And I read a lot. I read a lot. A lot on the top topic. I read a lot on a lot of different topics as well, but I really read up on different things. But there was never nothing mentioning vegetarians or anything plant-based. Again, this is 18 years ago. But I read up on, like, functional training and how to train and retrain. Uh, even though I had a background in training from playing football and powerlifting and weightlifting in general, uh, I've been lifting weights since I was in fifth grade. But I had to re-educate myself. <clears throat> and it was there that I really dove into that, you know, dove into like became obsessed with just working out because there was nothing else to do. I wasn't getting letters. My mom would write when she could, but my mom was working. My sisters and them, they was busy with their lifestyle. They wrote every blue moon. My mother would come try to visit me when she could. Yeah, it was uh, none of that energy from the outside. So I wasn't getting letters. So I was hunkered down in this whole new lifestyle, being in the joint. And after I made that decision and denounced that I was no longer going to be who I was prior to coming up there and not eat meat. The very next week, if I'm going back now, I, know I talked a little bit about some of the stuff I was doing in prison, but that next week, uh, while I was doing my time in Minnesota, my counselor called me and was like, Thompson, you are eligible for the drug program. Your lawyer submitted it. You got approved. You're going to go into this drug program. And if you're successful, you're going to get about up to th three years off your sentence. Um, and I, I didn't know what the drug program was in, but he, he told me about it. He educated me about it. <clears throat> My lawyer was able to get me into this drug program for people that have either alcohol problems or drug problems. And I was able to get into that. And he was like, you keep your nose clean. You get home in a couple of years, two to three years. And so that was the universe showing this way to me, even though I didn't have a drug problem, but he submitted that I had an alcohol problem since I had my first drink when I was young. When I was a kid that I mentioned earlier. That was enough for the court to, to approve that and put me into the system. Uh, well, it put me into this program. So I was going to do my time in Minnesota and finish it off in Colorado. And that was the best news I received because I thought I was going to have to do longer. I just couldn't grasp that. But that was me seeing the universe work its way into a plan that is bigger than me sometimes. Meaning the things I do and everything I do in my life, 
I do because I'm passionate about it because I want to do about it. But I still believe that if the universe shows you something, it's up to you to follow through on that or it's going to come back to hurt you in some type of way, whether you like it or not. And since I finally accepted this reality and denounced what denounced all negative energy I was a part of before I felt like this was the universe showing me the quickest way to get home while also knowing that I still needed to be in there to develop myself because people think they know themselves everybody always say that they know themselves and all of that and some people may, but I challenge them on that. Like, do you really, really know yourself? Do you really know <clears throat> who you are as a person? Most people don't because we're so distracted by technology. We're so distracted by jobs, family, day-to-day work. It's just a lot out there that's distracting us from becoming the best we can be, really developing ourselves as human beings that are capable of loving, capable of caring, capable of showing compassion, capable of understanding empathy, capable of doing amazing things, really raising our vibrations internally, raising that energy, and using that in society to be productive and to do good. It was there that I was able to develop that new person. I went in there into the system. A gangster. A drug dealer. Someone that was negative and doing negative things. Someone that was self-centered egotistical someone that truly was on the wrong path and lost but I found my way yeah I truly did so I did my time with my head up high And I came home a complete different person. Ready for the next chapter. Ready for my own personal rebirth. We made it. We, you, me, we made it through episode one, part one of my origin story. Yeah. I just want to say thank you for being alone for this ride with me. Yeah. Part two, dropping next week. I also want to dedicate part one to the men that I lost in my life. May you all rest in power. Booby, Derek, Dre, 
Wall, Tito, and Debo. Rest in power. If you like this podcast or you like what I represent, I ask that you like, share, screenshot, post to your communities. And more importantly, subscribe. Also, if you are ready to change your life around like I did, come join my herd at eatwellelephantseat.com. Lastly, this podcast is supported by you. So please go to patreon.com forward slash Dom's Thompson, D-O-M-Z-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. Please pledge, donate, whatever you can. I appreciate it. Much love. Peace.